Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand, and this is where we sit down with everyday people who do extraordinary things. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, we sit down with Davis, who goes on some very interesting, far-flung fishing adventures. Uh, But I find out, really, that uh, the fishing is only a small aspect of why he goes out and visits places like Cuba and Bolivia and other spots. It's to see the culture, to see the place, uh, and to see nature in all sorts of different forms. So a really interesting conversation. It was fantastic to have him spend a little bit of his time here. Yeah, I'll get right into it. But before I uh, do, as I always say, if you want to support the podcast, head over to Patreon. The link will be in the description. We're at the end of the month, which means... uh, That it's sort of payday, so to speak, for all of my patrons that I already have. I can't uh, thank you all enough. It really makes a huge difference uh, when it all comes to fruition like that. And it's grown this month quite a bit. The podcast as a whole has grown quite a bit. And uh, I have everybody to thank from every listener to every Patreon person to uh, everybody who comes and sits down on my show. So thanks Also, to everybody who writes in, because I really appreciate all the input about sales, marinas, all that other stuff. Uh, It's kind of like becoming my own little reference uh, area. So if you want to reach out to the show, head over to sailingintooblivion.com and uh, click on the podcast section and you can contact the show from there. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Davis. Welcome, Davis. Welcome, Jerome. To the podcast. This is, this is such a treat. <laughs> well, I, you know, after after seeing you the other night and uh, just barely delving into Cuba and the fishing trips and all that sort of stuff, I think we ought to just pick right back up and talk about Cuba. Well, it is. Uh, well, thank you for having me, first of all. But um, I have to say, you know, and I've done, I've been lucky enough. I've been really fortunate to have done some pretty interesting fishing, you know, throughout my 40 years or whatever of doing it. But uh, the one place that I've always found myself going back to, which I don't do uh, very often, is Cuba. And it's really because, at least in my opinion, and I think it's an opinion shared by a lot of people, um, you know, one, from a pure fishing perspective, I think it's got the, the, the best variety and volume of, you know, saltwater fishing, reef flats fishing, in the world that uh, do you think that's mostly uh because it's kind of been such a hard place to get to for all these years yeah i i think that's part of it although what's funny about it jerome and i keep having to get this into my head is that you think you're going to this sort of uh exclusive unavailable inaccessible place yeah and it really is the case for only americans you know uh, everyone else in the world can go there and has been going there it, you, you know Oh, really? I, I guess I never thought of it that yeah, way. Yeah, and, and neither did I, really. I mean, you know, the, the Europeans, the Canadians, the, you know, the, the Russians, uh, you know, the, whoever, whoever uh, you know, they're all free to go there. It's just really the U.S., by and large, is not able to do that. Not that that's a small market, don't get me wrong. But... Right. 
Well, we're pretty close by. Yeah, and we're very close by. Um, but I think also, uh, and I'll give, this is part of what I was going to say about how complicated Cuba strikes me as being, um, is that uh, they don't, it, where we typically fish is called the Garden of the Gods or Jardin de la Reina, which is about a 850 square mile national park. Oh, wow. Okay. Off the southern coast of Cuba, a little bit you know, sort of east-central off the southern coast. Yeah. Um, and it's a particularly well-managed fishery. Um, you know, they the, the Cubans outsource the management of it through a contract with a company called Avalon, which I believe is an Italian company. And, you know, and you sort of have this idea that the Italians, you know, can't manage their way out of much of anything, but they do a terrific... Hey, I might have some Italian you, listeners. You know, and, you I, know. And, and, I, and I say that in the most endearingly complimentary way, because there's no people I'd rather spend an evening with than the Italians. Yeah, so, right. You know, I mean, they're just a really fun uh, uh, fun folks to, to be with, but they do a terrific job managing this thing. and managing the number of boats that go in there, managing how much pressure it gets. They divide that park up into three sections and basically only allow a handful of skiffs in each of those sections through the course of the season, which is basically, you know, I mean, you can fish pretty much all year there, but the, the real peak season is, is early spring to sort of early summer. Oh, okay, know? okay. Um, so I, the fishing there, I, I just... Uh, maybe because of that 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 managed pressure, uh, they don't do really um, they don't do any spin fishing that I can uh, d determine in that neck of the woods. It's all fly fishing. It's all uh, fly fishing. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, well, I know a lot of the flats guys that were down in in like the BVI and yep. stuff. That was sort of the way to go. Was right. And and almost all of it is catch and release, unless you're you know you catch a snapper and looking for a meal. And we ate a lot of snapper on the boat. Right, um, right. But the barracuda, they're edible, but you don't really do that. And the tarpon aren't edible. The bonefish really aren't edible. Yeah, uh, yeah. The permit aren't edible. They're just mostly sort of trophy fish. And, they're just and... great, terrific fighting. Yeah. Trophy sport fish. And the trifecta is, again, you told me the other night, but yeah, I forgot. Yeah, bonefish, tarpon, and permit. And permit. And you try and get all those in one trip, right? And if you want to make the grand, the, the super slam, you add a snook into that. Oh, so okay. snook is the super slam. Uh, so anyway, I uh, I love the fishing there, but equally importantly, and, and to me, fishing isn't just about fishing. It's about the adventure and where you're going and what you're seeing and how different and new is it for you and... and Cuba always represented a very unique, um, you know, travel experience for me. You know, Havana and and the rural areas of Cuba are just, I mean, it it it, it blows your mind what you see when you're there. Uh, you, you know, in the in the city of Havana, you try and imagine what it was like back in the you know 50s when. You know Meyer Lansky and all the people and Ernest Hemingway and everything. Yeah, else we're, we're all, all down there. there. And, and it was really just a wonderful, wonderful, you know, vibrant place to visit. Um, I mean, I remember what was my the first went, year that you went down there? I think it was probably 15 years ago or so. Oh, okay, okay. So, so, and it, so it was technically, I suspect, uh, illegal. We had to sort of go through Cancun, um, and we had to get a. Um, 
you know, you had to get a, 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 per, a, 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 a sort of an educational permit. Uh, right. So you, you were going under the veil of helping or supporting some local charity or nonprofit of some kind in Cuba, whether it's conservation related or religious, relig, you know, related yeah. to the church or, or something. But it was never under the pretense of going fishing. Um, well, that's helping the community anyway, because yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a sham, some... and you know, you'd give, you'd pay some money, and that would. There's that would always help. a loophole. Yeah, there's always, always a loophole, uh, and you would make sure that you never got your passport stamped and all that stuff because you didn't want to come back into the U.S. with a, a, a Cuban stamp on your passport. Right, right. And again, it was really the U.S. that that didn't want you there. It was not so much Cuba that didn't want you there. So yeah, it was more uh, protecting yourself from the U.S. Treasury. But anyway, you know, Havana, you go there. We'll move the mic just a little yeah. little closer. There we go. When you, when you go to Havana, um, you're immediately taken by how stunningly beautiful the architecture is. Yeah, um, you were saying. it was. It's just beautiful, beautiful uh, sort of gothic, you know, uh, European architecture. And... And yet it's all degrading. I mean, it's it's not well maintained, uh, and and the infrastructure is is degraded and outdated, um, and it's it's a very visual example of of really com the failure of communism in many ways. I mean, you see it all over the place with the poverty, with you know the food lines, um, and and the the craziness by which folks are, are are compensated there as i think we talked about the other day you got a a cab driver making $300 a month uh, us dollars a month yeah. uh, our guides on our boats uh, would make $300 a week uh which is an incredible amount of money yeah. for that neck of the woods and yet doctors and teachers will make $30 a month and the education and healthcare in Cuba is surprisingly good. And you just scratch your head and go, how is that possible? Yeah, it, it just it, doesn't make any sense. And and I think a lot of that has to do because they they, they sort of fence them in and, and really don't give them a lot of mobility. Um, you know, so anyway, I mean, you, you look at all those sort of nuances and, 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 fa and, and, the, and the people are generally wonderfully friendly and happy. I've found that throughout the entire Caribbean. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's yeah, it's pretty prevalent throughout. Uh, and the people are happy. They they welcome and jump at any sort of opportunities to, you know, uh, make a business for themselves. You know, the Paladoras, which are the the sort of privately held restaurants, you know, are trying to get it going. And you know, there's small little examples of entrepreneurialism going on there as they slowly sort of have loosened some of the reins, but. But by and large, it, it's still a very restrictive, you know, um, closed, uh, controlled environment. Yeah. And and yet, you know, the music is just unbelievably yeah, the good. The music's great. You know, the food the, is great. The people the are beaches. friendly. Yeah, and the beaches are wonderful. The food is horrible. You would think that you could find food. The food's I'm, horrible? The food is horrible. Cubano uh, sandwiches? Yeah, they, they're remarkably horrible. The, I, best, the best food we ever had was always on the boat. You know, we would go on a boat, and then they'd bring us skiffs every morning, and so... You were well, always they, having they fresh... They might be hiding the, the yeah, good no, stuff, <laughs> you know. They're, that's... Uh, sometimes it takes a while to find those hidden gems it, where... It, probably true. The probably locals true. Uh, we tried to go to some of those private restaurants, and they were better. They were certainly better. But, 
I was just amazed uh, uh, how average the food was with, when you've got all that stuff around oh, you. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, I, I've i always enjoyed it. It's always been a treat. And seeing the rural areas, you know, the, the farming and, and the, the technology or limited technology with which farming's done, even the cigar making. I mean, my God, the cigar making, uh, all the cigars are pretty much made in, in, in a, one or two factories in Havana. Yeah, all by hand, right? All by hand and on multiple floors. One floor is for, you know, the leaf separation and the next floor, you know, and they take it all the way up until you get to that first chair I think I was telling you about. It's a hand, sort of a, a generational hand-me-down kind of thing. The the guy who gets to make the last lick or the last yeah, wrap right. on the cigar is a very prestigious. It's like the first violin in a in an orchestra. <laughs> yeah, well, he's, it's got to be perfect. That's perfect, and and they crank out something like I don't know a uh, uh, thousand cigars or something like that a day or Every something. Day. It's, wow, it's pretty cool to see. So anyway, it's 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 an adventure and it's it's an experience and and it's one that I. I really enjoyed going back to. I probably have been there eight or ten times, and I just—I've never been any place eight or ten times. Yeah, yeah, because you sort of jaunt all well, over there's the a world lot to see. for these places. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. to see, you know, and there's a lot of places where you want to go and, you know, try different things, new adventures. But you know, Cuba sort of always kept talking. Well, about. and it's—it's it's a big country i mean i think it's the biggest one down in the caribbean isn't it by could far be, could and be. uh so you're not always going to the exact same spots are you pretty much we are uh, oh, we, really? we may get there a little differently that the the garden of the gods that national park is is there is other places to fish but that is the area that is really the most uh right. productive um, well i would assume the the north coast of it gets the north swell and the oh, that's good the point. east side's going to get the trade winds so that that inner sort of harbor which mm-hmm. is huge I, i'm assuming that's where you're talking it about it must be and 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 um you can get there different ways now it used to be you always had to go to havana and then you take like a six-hour bus ride uh, mm-hmm. to hukuro which is where the boats were oh that's uh, where you get to see the countryside and yeah everything. so that's where you'd look out the bus window and just see the countryside yeah. and it was just I always love that. Oh, it's love the best. That it's part the best. Any travel. Um, but uh, lately, you can now fly into Camagüey, which is you know sort of the capital, one of the provinces down more east uh, from Havana. And where and, are you flying from now? Well, they've it, again. It goes kind of up and down in terms of how the uh, in terms of the access. Yeah. You know, when when. Uh, when Obama was in office, for example, it got a little less restrictive, and so you could actually fly from Fort Lauderdale on, you know, uh, I, I think it was JetBlue or something like that, right yeah. into Camagüey, and then you know it's a two-hour bus ride to Hukuro and. Uh, well, your... that was that was about the same time that I started hearing about other cruisers uh, mm-hmm. talking about going to Cuba and how how unbelievably untouched it was and. And um, all that stuff. It's still, I think, I don't think I ever heard a story that was like, it was easy to get in there and there weren't a lot, a few issues for an American flag boat. That was still the, yeah. If you're a captain on an American flagged boat, you know, like a center console going down from Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, Cuba, right. I think that's probably a challenge. Well, and even sailboats, because sailboats, I, there's uh, this great sailor, his name's John Kretschmer, and he does, uh, he's... I think he's one of the great American skippers of our time. He, really? People pay him tons of money to take them out across the Atlantic in the wintertime 
to see what heavy weather sailing is really all about. No kidding. And does he use his own boat, or is they off? Is he often cap skipping? He does with it, it on deliveries. He does it on his own boats. No uh, kidding. I mean, and he's written very prolifically um, at the mercy of the sea, um, Cape Horn to starboard. I mean, he's 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 the man. He is the man. He doesn't. Uh, it's I. I think I only compliment him so much because he's not really a solo sailor. <laughs> so he's in sort of a different, you know, thing. But I, I think I, I tip my hat to him because when you take other people on the boat, that's a heck of yeah. a lot more responsibility, you, you know. It's one thing to just go out there by yourself and if something happens. But And he's been doing this for years, but he... How old a guy is he? Uh, he's got to be mid to late 40s, I think. Oh. Probably just a little older than I am. Um, I could be way off on that. He might be in his 50s, but I'm going to give him credit. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but uh, he... There's one book where he talks about going down to Cuba to pick up a boat and, you know, they, he has a VHF radio in his bag and that causes this huge amount of trouble. And they're like, why do you have that VHF and why do you need a radio? And this would have been probably like late nineties, maybe something like that. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, It seemed like it was this ultimate destination for a while, but I, I never heard of just the nice, smooth, easy in and out and... Well, that was pretty unusual. Normally, uh, we would have to go through, you know, some go through Toronto, uh, Cancun, Nassau uh, is yeah. another entry point. Um, so, yeah, that was an unusual period where uh, and the very first time I went, uh, we uh, went to Cancun, I think I mentioned, and we got on these old, you know, Russian jets that, uh, you know, <laughs> commercial jets that really, flew, I mean, it it had the wooden, you know, toilet seat and, uh, oh my gosh. you know, all the, the, the overhead lighting and everything else and flight attendant buttons and everything else was in Russian. And, um, oh, that must've been kind of cool. And they A had little no, worrying, but they had cool. no overhead compartments that were closed. They were all open, you know, with yeah. just strings sort of holding everything up <laughs> and they would spray dry ice or something to cool the plane down. So it was always filled with it. You almost felt like you were at a you know, a Def Leppard concert or something <laughs> like that. But God, it was, uh, yeah, it was a little nerve wracking. You know, I can't remember what the names of the planes were, but they, they were very oh, that'd old. Be interesting. Yeah. Jeez. But no, I, 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 I would recommend any, even if you're not a fisherman, uh, I would recommend, and they do, people are doing, uh, I, I've, I've got some friends who have, have biked there for, uh, you know, a couple of weeks where they'll, oh, they'll, yeah, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll do, like do a big bike tour, yeah, big right. bike, you know, f- across the island uh so any chance you can get to get to havana and um and or get to the out uh, out, out outside of the city uh, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty neat and uh and you just wonder how how it's going to evolve you know the russians have sort of given up a lot of their support they can't afford to you look at the russian embassy and it's kind of you know degraded and, yeah um yeah. You know, you just wonder how sustainable it all is. I mean, obviously the Castros have given up power and they've uh, passed along to one of their uh, deputies. And, and you just, it's it's going to be interesting to see, you know, there's a, a continuing and growing sort of itch from the people there to to be allowed to, you know. Join the rest of the world. Yeah, so no, it seems like that. So, but I, there is, I, you know, I always think of, and I, I've never been to Cuba, but like we said uh, when we talked before, Dominica is mm-hmm. has a lot of similarities, I think, and and it's it's untouched in a lot of ways, I think, because 
it doesn't have the typical big sandy beaches and protected harbors for boats and great areas for big resorts and such. And so it's, it's always, and it's super mountainous really, and it, it's essentially sort of gone unnoticed. Whereas its neighbors, Guadalupe and Martinique have exploded with, you know, development and all that sort of stuff. And, and people come in and buy huge swaths of the island. Dominica has just relatively stayed the same. And when you go to Roseau, is that largely because it's just maybe viewed as not as attractive? I mean, without the beaches and all that stuff, it's yeah, not, it, doesn't, I, it doesn't fit the criteria. I guess. I mean, it, you know, when, when I'm in there, I stay in a, the Harbor of Portsmouth and it's just a half moon bay, a few miles across. And it's, it's the only inkling of protection now if you get a north swell the boat's going to be rolling and rocking like crazy to the point where you almost leave and have to go somewhere else no kidding um and that's you know compared to a place like guadalupe or grenada or any of those i mean you've got a million little coves and inlets that you're super protected and they sort of give birth to these little harbor towns and Mm -hmm. all that well in dominica yeah it's definitely different but it it in some ways i think that's what's kept it such a unique spot where you can go there and you really get the feel for what the Caribbean used to be like. Um, wow. And I, you're, you're making me intrigued to want to oh, visit it's, there. It's, you know, and it, it's Is one of those. any good there? Uh, we, you know, they do, they do a lot of, uh, like local fishing stuff. They do a lot of whale watching cause the sperm whales. I bet um, there's probably pretty good sport fishing, you know, maybe for, uh. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it. Um, for, uh marlin or or the hard part is there's no real big harbor for any of these boats to stay so even in uh in portsmouth there's one dock which is the the customs dock Mm -hmm. and that's pretty much it there's i guess there's one teeny little other dock but the idea of having a big pier with a bunch of fingers and a whole bunch of boats like tied up to it's not gonna happen it's not happening and i think they've talked about wanting to do that but i mean it's it's a pretty drastic infrastructure sort of thing and they did i believe they traded their the rights for their fishing grounds to the chinese in exchange for infrastructure like roads and things like that they get because they get blown out pretty hard. Um, Maria hit them pretty bad. I was going to say hurricane season probably is. Oh yeah, and and David I think was the last one that like everybody remembers, and I think that was in the seventies. Okay. But I mean, this place is so mountainous that the it's it's not really the winds or the waves; it's the rainfall, and they get these flash floods where half of a mountainside just comes cascading down, and then houses and villages are basically cut off for weeks if not months and it's it's wow. really yeah i mean when i was there i think it was even two years or a year after uh hurricane maria there were still bridges that there were completely out and you know they built these little tiny things to get across and stuff but it's absolutely devastating but it, it's just like i said i mean it's just got this cut off i don't want to say prehistoric because it's not the word but just this this old time feel to it because it hasn't it just doesn't fit that criteria for mass development you know you're not going to find a ritz carlton there no (laughs) no definitely not i mean there, there are a few hotels that have seemingly popped up that seem to be pretty empty and i think the word on the street down there was that a lot of them are just like sort of tax haven 
sort of things that, that people are Part their money. Yeah. I mean, I was down there at one point and they, there were, there were some pretty bad riots. Um, they burnt down some buildings. What's the structure of government or do you have any idea? Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely, they have elections. Um, gosh, I want to say I, you see them when you're there during that time, it's either the blue or the red kind of pretty much like, like here. Um, is it French or is it, uh, Oh no, it was English, English, and then I'm pretty sure they're they're just completely separate. But okay, not under no colonial or right, right. And when when I was there years ago, they were still, from what I understood, the guy who was in charge, you know, had to have a huge set of like bodyguards all the time. Yeah. I mean, it was just really corrupted sort of yeah. sort well, of. Well, I think that's what uh, frustrates a lot of people in Cuba too. I mean, it, it, there's no shortage of corruption there too. Um, you know, uh, and it, 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 there's a lot of dissatisfaction with, you know, the way things are run, you know, the reliability of the infrastructure, whether it's power, whether it's water, whether mm-hmm. it's whatever. Um, and, uh, just sort of this perpetuation of, of unproductive, you know, unsatisfactory yeah, it's like stagnant because stagnant yeah it just uh and, and i can't imagine that that can just be tolerated indefinitely but somehow it's been it, for it, 60 years you know yeah it, it'll it go on and on well but you know if you've if you had guns into the mix and one side has yeah, pretty much all the power and the other doesn't yeah it's pretty hard to uh and i i don't know what any of the the laws are down there but if the population as a whole isn't really allowed to have weapons and the only people that do are, are the government and the police, that's always. Yeah. That's uh, the odds are stacked. Against yeah, yeah, exactly. The other place that, that I went that I will mention that I thought was pretty interesting, uh, was in Bolivia, which is again, oh, sort really? of a, uh, you know, a, a, a different style of governing there as well. You yeah. Know, pretty autocratic. Um, <coughs> and, um, excuse me, we I did that trip actually a couple of times, um, and we flew into Santa Cruz, and then you take a little Cessna two hundred six or whatever to a, a landing strip. But the the neat part about that trip was, uh, and these are rivers. Uh, there's sort of three big rivers in this region that feed into the Amazon: the the Sucure, oh, the Pluma, okay. uh, and the Agua Negra. Um, what and, sort of altitude are we talking? Are you up in the that's mountains? A good, yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know that it was too high. You can see the the mountains, but I don't yeah. know that w- we were very high. Um, but you fish for these uh, beautiful, uh, very striking, uh, very carnivorous uh, fish called golden dorado. Um, oh. And uh, big, huge jaws, but just strikingly gold uh, bodies, and they can get up to thirty pounds. And um, but what was an interesting piece of that is that they the the fishery there is in a, an area that's that was that is occupied by the Samani tribe, mm-hmm. and these. Uh, Oh, I've heard uh, the guy who's who does that meat eater podcast and uh, that show. He goes up there. Could be. Yeah, yeah. yeah sorry, sorry to interrupt. Well, I've no, just heard that, that name so, before. So I mean, they're, they're uh, you know, they're they're still very much hunter gatherers still. Yeah. And and so you're hanging out with them. 
Well, the, the, yeah. I mean, there, uh, there's a, an Argentine company that established a partnership with the tribe. Right, because it's their land. It's their land. And, and their resource, And yeah. because they were hunter-gatherers, you know, they were, they were eating everything around them, including the Dorado. Uh, and so they established this partnership that said, you leave the Dorado alone. You know, we'll bring in clients to fish them. You know, we'll provide some economic support to your villages. We'll make your some of your tribesmen guides for the for the boats. You can work in our lodges. Help us construct the lodges. They have, I think, three or four lodges in the area yeah. uh, on each of the rivers. Um, but to watch uh, these natives um, in their element. Uh, whether it's being able to hear the plane coming in five minutes before I can hear the plane right, coming right. in. They don't need polarized glasses. They can see the fish uh, as clearly, if not more clearly, than than the guides, the Argentine guides who have polarized glasses. Jeez. Their their sense of hearing and sight is is remarkable. Um, they make all the all the canoes that you're in, and they they pull them themselves. They never wear shoes, and their feet are really tough, uh, uh, remarkably tough. Oh, I'm sure. And, I'm sure their their toes are spread out oh, like got fingers of almost. It. I mean, they almost look like hands. I yeah, mean, they're yeah, just yeah. incredible. Well, if you're bouncing around on rocks all the time, all I mean, the time, you have to grip them. And yeah. they make their own bow bow and arrows, and they will shoot these sabalo, which are the bait fish for the for the dorado. Um, anything that moves, uh, they're going after. I, yeah. I'll never forget this story or this moment when I was, we, me and another guy, we were in the canoe going down the river and there's a, there's the Argentine guide. And then there's either one or two, uh, Samanis with you, mm -hmm. uh, steering the boat and guiding. Um, and there were two white storks sitting up in a tree and, this guy uh, in the back of the boat saw them, um, and he had this little, it was not very big, but it was a, like a twenty-two rifle, but it was all put together with chicken wire, and yeah, and yeah, yeah, the right. thing even worked. And this <laughs> boat's moving, I don't know, down the river probably at, I don't know, five knots or something like that, or maybe yeah. not that fast, and just on the run, shoots this stork in the tree. The stork opens its wings and they just get fixed because he's obviously, you know. Already dead, yeah. yeah. And he just crash lands into the beach across the way. The spouse, apparently they mate for life. The spouse yeah. comes down to join the stork uh, and stands next to the fallen stork. And they take out that stork and bring both storks into our canoe and... By the next day, everything in that stork was used except the feet. I mean, they Jeez. used all the feathers. They they ate all the meat. Uh, I oh mean, heck yeah! I mean, it was and there was a what what do you call the uh, uh, oh the taper? It's a sort of a uh, uh, it's like a a big pig, but oh, even okay. bigger. It's yeah. Like, I mean, one of those was running in the water, and these guys took off trying to catch that thing, um, and they couldn't do it. But my point is, you, you sit in the in at nighttime, and you can hardly hear any wildlife because within their region, they've taken they've most taken of the wildlife, all, all that stuff. Well, uh, it, you you know, you have to be in that mindset of like these woods are my grocery store. 
Totally. Because there is nowhere else that I'm getting. We would take pictures of these kids. They had never had their picture taken before. Most of the people had no idea how old they were. Yeah, um, yeah. And what was great, and this is a classic story of sort of the ingenuity of and, and just sort of the knowledge and, and history of this tribe is that they're one of the, what, the first lodge we stayed at the first year was pretty close to the river. Um, and it was much further down towards the banks of the river than any of the other villages and villagers' houses that we would see along the river. Yeah. And we got a lot of rain. Uh, as a matter of fact, we couldn't fish the last couple of days because there was so much rain. Um, and the river really did rise a lot. And so anyway, we left and came and we were going to come back because we missed a couple of days of fishing. And the outfitter said, we'll make a deal for you to, you know, give you some credit for that and all that stuff. And that lodge got taken out by the river. It just blew it away. Oh, really? And the villagers, you could tell said, you know, you shouldn't be building that yeah, close to... Yeah, yeah, right. They knew. They'd seen it before. They'd, they'd been told it before. about it. I, trust me, they sort of said, you, you don't want to build it there. And the next lodge they built was much higher off the bank than the yeah, one that they built before. So just seeing, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, it's just the, the, the... Well, there's the wisdom. That's uh, all that wisdom that has been gathered through the, you know, years and years and years. Well, so, and I, I think in that in that sort of respect, I mean, I, I always talk about, people ask about like your your mindset when you're out in the ocean by yourself for a long, long time. <laughs> and one of the things that I talk about is this sort of low level input focus that you get into. And I mean, it, it, for example, when I'm, when I'm sort of half sleeping and stuff, if, if just the smallest pin and, and the whole world around me can be wavy and noisy with wind and all this sort of stuff but if there's one sound out of place, it will wake me up, snap me out of whatever daydream I'm in, and I know that something's wrong. And then instantly I have to get up there and do it. And, you know, my life is is sort of shrunken down into this little tiny boat and this world around me. But I become so sort of... It's, it's tuned my, in. Yeah, I'm tuned into it, and I my whole life is just centered around it. And although I don't know what's going on in the rest of the world and all these things that, that we know day to day, probably far more than we ever should uh, in our normal lives, but out there, uh, I think it's kind of similar to how those guys are living in the woods where yeah, it's, they... It's life and death in yeah. many respects. It's sustainability. I mean, you know, I, I'm curious, how uh, is that something that you... It took a while to acquire while you were on the sea, and is it something that goes away when you get... Back in Jerome Town? Or, uh, yeah, uh, well, it, it is. It, it typically takes about five days to 10 days for my brain to sort of slow down and stop reaching for my phone or, or you right. know, sort of the normal things. But your things. senses, the acuity of your senses and that listening and that, that seeing. Yeah, that, that comes up pretty quickly because it only takes a couple of days of being sort of isolated on this boat before right. you're, you're pretty much in it. And you... Because you're not sleeping a normal sleep pattern. Yeah, you're sleeping with one eye open, sort of, right? Pretty much. I mean, I rarely ever will go as as deep into sleep that I'm I'm having these real crazy dreams and such. Every once in a while, if I'm really exhausted and and the boat and the weather lets me just keep in the sleeping. doldrums or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, interesting enough, the doldrums, unless it's just gone completely flat calm, 
and it's going to be like that for days. The doldrums are usually so changeable uh, that awesome. just like, when you get comfortable in your bunk and you're like, oh, this bang, is going to be great. Changes, yeah, yeah, all of a sudden something happens. It's really the 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 trade winds where you, you know, there have been times where I've gone 12 days with only doing two sail changes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, day and night, just wow. the same sails are up and we're just boosting along because the wind's, you know, 18 to 20 knots and it just stays Steady. that same direction. Oh, yeah. I mean, but it, it actually, that, those times kind of get a little bit boring um, because besides your routine daily checks, if everything's sailing the way it should, there's less wear on the rigging and on the sails. And so you're not... You're not finding chafe that you have to deal with, and you do your morning check, and everything's the same. It's as almost it was. like autopilot. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you know, I you obviously have to sort of really push away from becoming complacent, right? Because you never want to do that. But you know, that's where you really. I've learned that no matter where you are and how far you have to go, or how soon you might be back, always save a good pile of books. Just in case. <laughs> that way, if you didn't get you, in those situations. As I recall, didn't you, you had an iPad or you had downloaded a bunch of books, but they hadn't all downloaded or you you didn't have as many as you had um, hoped to have or something like that? Oh, no. I think I, I know what you're talking about. I had downloaded a ton of like really long form podcasts. Right. And the, the iPad was set in such a way that when you finished one, it deleted it. And, you know, I was out there for so long, 271 days, I listened to the the remainder of the ones that I had, because I caught it after about two weeks, because I, I went back, because there's a lot of times you turn something on, and then you have to go and change a sail, so you don't right. actually hear the whole thing, and so I went back, and I was like, where's that podcast? It was actually a, a radio lab called The Rhino Hunter, I don't know if you've ever heard that one, but... It's uh, mind blowing. It's about trophy hunting in oh, Africa. Well, it's it's basically the guy's not to go off on the tangent, but like he's he's says you know with, without me going over there and doing this and paying you know quarter million dollars to do it, these all these rhinos are gonna be dead, right? Because we're paying for the protection of the rest of these. And I mean, there's a whole lot of, there's, yeah. you know, there's, there's two sides to all that. Yeah, but, interesting uh, side to the story that doesn't get told very much. Oh my gosh. Well, it's, it really is incredible. It's, um, yeah, shoot. I don't know what number episode it is, but it's radio lab and it's called the rhino hunter. And it, it just, it, uh, it was one of those things where it opened my eyes up. I was like, Oh, I had, I had Never no thought idea. Of it that way. Yeah, yeah. It's right. like, Holy smokes. And with this case, I guess with with these rhinos, and I don't know if they were black rhinos or what, um, but I guess once a rhino, a male rhino, gets to a certain age and it can't reproduce anymore, they become very violent and they start just trying to kill other rhinos that can reproduce and all uh -huh. this stuff. And so it's kind of like they need to get rid of the thing anyway. And I don't know. Like I said, I don't want to get off into the weeds. Well, no, but, but I, you I, know, I, you know, I do find it interesting when you're on that boat having to, and I and I saw that with these with these Samanis, uh, you know, their the the acuity and 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 sensitivity of their senses was yeah. just remarkable. I mean, I couldn't remarkable. even imagine. I mean, I I'm w up here just in Jerome Sound, like this morning, I'm up right around sunrise and such, and. There, there must have been six or seven deer that, that walked by. Squirrels are ripping around all over the place. But even that, I don't think I'd be able to survive out here. I'm sure one of those guys <laughs> probably could. Like if that house wasn't over there, I don't know. I don't know if I'd be able to do that. 
I, well, I know I couldn't do it out at sea. I don't think I, if yeah, I, but they, you're raising it in, in terms of connecting it to your time on sea. And it, and it's interesting how your brain adapted immediately because it's seriously life and death where you're out there. That's true. And, you yeah. know, your senses had to be heightened, uh, because you missed that pin drop or you, cause that may be, a linchpin or something, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, it carries a level of importance that, you know, isn't the case when you're in Jerome town. Right. You know, exactly. Here it's pretty luxury <laughs> yeah. uh, for, I'll, for I'll being in the woods. That. Yeah. You're very lucky. Well, there was, there was a point, um, it was, in it. so in the Southern ocean, one of the things that happens, you know, obviously you get these big storms that roll through, but there are all these, these low pressure systems. And when it passes, then you typically are becalmed, but you still have really big rolling swell for yeah, a it's while. it's like any front that comes through here or whatever. Yeah, There's yeah. but calm after it, you know. To the, to the next degree as far as what's left over that you have to deal with. And, um, normally you would leave your mainsail up and let it slat so that the boat at least stays pretty level. If you take that down, you have no sails up and you're in 10, 10, 12 foot swell. Can't imagine. I mean, we're talking 30 to 40 degrees both, both ways and everything down below, no matter how, how tight you store it and all that stuff, gonna... it breaks free and starts rolling around and doing anything. But I can remember, um, you know, letting it go for a little while, the mainsail would slat and there's a big stainless steel track that runs on the mast. And it just, I would hear these little heads of these rivets when they would pop off and hit the deck. And I mean, we're talking a tenth like a the bearing. size of a penny. Yeah. 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 And, and made out of, I think they were stainless steel, but they were really thin. And that's how, you know, that's how sort of acute you get. Which means your mainsail is. Oh, it's basically every time, because Sven built that thing so strong that every time. You know, it would flat from one side to the other because it wasn't stretching at all. It was all that it's all force that pressure and force on that straight on, on that, that track. Yeah. yeah. So everywhere where there was a little, um, a little slide that was connected to the sail, that's where it would pop them off. And would they? So you, did you have to fix that or just <coughs> reattach it? Uh, I I think I put in a few new rivets that were a bit lower down. Um, it was kind of a pain for sure. Cause they, you really have to use a pretty big rivet gun, like this big one that you're like, not the wow. little tiny one. And, uh, but it was more about sort of changing the position of where those slides sit. And more than anything, it was, if it got really bad like that, you just had to grin and bear it and take the mainsail down. And then and just have a thirty roll. or forty degrees either yeah. way. And I, I think to be honest, when, when I tell people that, you know, I, I pretty much ran out of alcohol 120 days in or something like that. That was a big part of it because you'd, you'd be sitting there in this miserable, horrible condition. You're not moving at all. Forecast is showing you've got to sit there for another day. Oh. And you've got a fully stocked bar over there. <laughs> it's sort of, and you're in the Southern Ocean. There's nobody around. I don't know. For me, it was a no-brainer. And I talk about that in the book. I'm like, you know, my 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 solution to this problem was just to have a couple of drinks. Yep. You know. Yeah. At least get you to sleep a little faster. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> no, I, we've we've talked a lot about your trip, and I. Uh, I, I just can't fathom uh, all that you had to uh, adjust to, adapt to, manage, you know, whether it's the loneliness, whether it's the 
the risks, you know, uh, whether it's the, you know, your own, you know, hygiene and health. I mean, wearing layers and layers of those clothes. Oh, it's filthy. I mean, it just, I, I have to assume that that so exceeded your expectations, even if, even if you had a pretty good sense of what you were getting into. Well, it, it did for sure. I mean, it, it blew me away in, in a lot of respects, it's, it's especially some of the things that, you know, I sort of screwed up on, like not having antibiotics and things like that. And when you get way out there, as much as I don't like to sit there and dwell on what could happen, right? you know, the thoughts sort of, you start being like, geez, you know, I don't have a lot of food left or geez, I don't have, like, if I get cut and it gets infected, I don't know what I'm going to actually do. And, you know. And you can, you can, you can get focused on that pretty easily if you're oh, careful. <laughs> twist your brain right up. Well, and that's, you know, that that's one thing that I was fairly confident that, my brain would be able to handle the solitude. I didn't, I, on that first trip, I didn't even for a second really think that I would ever like go crazy or anything like that, but it does happen. I yeah, mean, sure. it, it absolutely does. But you know, I, I think for that whole trip, people, whenever they ask, you know, why would you do that? I think after all this time, I, I can confidently say that the biggest reason was that I wanted to experience all of that. Right. I wanted to see what it was like to be at sea for months and months and months and yep. wanted to be down in this scary place called the Southern Ocean and see what that was like. And I definitely got my, I got more than I asked for. Well, you that's really for have sure. to want to do it to yes. do it in the first place. Oh, 100%. Um, There's I, a lot of misery in there. A yeah, I know. And I would also assume that once you got through it and knowing what could have happened i mean when you've got 15 20 foot waves or waves the size of a hotel they yeah. happen to not yeah. hit your boat mm-hmm. but could have hit your boat I yeah, mean, yeah yeah you can't navigate your way away from those or whatever well, I mean, and at some point you got to go down below and take a take a snooze well wow, right. it's just i mean doing so that. i i just uh I, I remember asking you if you'd known all the risks and 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 really understood all the risks that you were undertaking to do the trip, would you have done it? And I think your answer was probably not, but that wouldn't have prevented me from wanting to go. I mean, right, right. Well, and I mean, you know, I say that, but it's it's one of those things where I think it's and my mom always describes it. Like, you know, you give birth, it's the most painful, horrible thing. Pain has no memory. But then, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, like, you wouldn't have a second kid. <laughs> exactly. It's a certain amount of time goes by, and you're like, you know, it wasn't that bad right. out there, was it? Let's go try and go around Cape Horn again. Well, and I, you know, in, to a much lesser degree, um, and I've just always subscribed to the idea that there's a really big world out there. And, yeah. And, and there's a lot of different ways that people live, and a lot of different environments in which people live and uh, a lot of different ways that people live in their culture and, and all that stuff. And, you know, I just have a curiosity to just see what some of that stuff is like, you know, whether it's the Somani tribe or whether it's, you know, going to Cuba and seeing what those, uh, what that community is, is up to and how they, how they live their day-to-day lives. Um, you know, you tend to get sort of in a little bit of a bubble here in the... In the well, you can, yeah. And I, I I, know I myself have even said it a few times where I'm like, man, you know, 
still a lot of stuff in the States I haven't even seen. Right. But there is something to be said when you make that leap and you get out of the country and you really see a big difference. Because, you know, we are spoiled. We've got the difference between the North, the South, the East Coast, the West Coast, Texas, Florida, Maine. I mean, it's it's like its own continent, essentially. Um, yeah. And well, it almost we, is. Shoot. We, relatively speaking, have an embarrassment of riches. And Oh, absolutely. Uh, you get to Dominica, you get to Cuba, you get to the Somani tribe in Bolivia, you get to, you know, parts of Asia, Indonesia, and all that stuff. And it's just, it's fascinating to me. You yeah. Know, it's fascinating to me to just see how the rest of the world, as best you can, you know, lives and functions. And, and there's just a lot to see out there. And I... I push it on my kids as best I can to, you know, if they are fortunate enough and lucky enough to be able to get out and see a little bit of the world, I mean, jump on it because it's it's a pretty fascinating damn place. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating places to see. Oh, man. We did a a delivery, gosh, this was mid-2000s, I guess, taking a boat from the Caribbean over to Turkey. And, you know, we went to a lot of different spots. Took us like 40 days to get there. Oddest thing in the world, though. When did you do this? This was, uh, it must have been 2006 or seven, maybe? Hmm. Something like that. I'd have to look at my journal. But uh, this is a nice boat, like 98 feet. We get over there. We pull into Turkey in the morning. And then there is almost a total eclipse of the sun. Oh my God. That afternoon. And I believe that's what they have on their flag. So it was just this odd, crazy coincidence. But before I left, so my job was basically to help deliver this boat over there. And then I was going to fly back. And uh, I had asked the, the, the guy who was the captain at the time, you know, if it was possible to go to Istanbul. Scared me half to death, just the thought of going, you know, small town Jerome going right. to Istanbul, which is one of the biggest cities in, you know, it's right on the border of Europe yep. and Asia. Yep. And I just sort of gutted it up. I was like, I'm never going to be here again, Pry. And I just went for it. And I spent three, I think three nights there. And the first two days sort of exploring on my own. And then the last day I sort of was like, man, I, I don't have a lot of time. I'm going to get a guide. And it was the best decision I've ever Full made. Of history. Oh my God. And we just went to so many places i would have never known about and got That's what in it's all about she's oh, having having that local wisdom sort of guide you into an area i mean it was unbelievable absolutely unbelievable and just it, it made for i don't know i don't want to say a better experience because there's something to be said for striking off on your own i right. think but definitely very memorable because then you had sort of a partner in crime as well well, but a place like that is just so rich in history that, oh my God. The Blue Moss, when I turned the corner and saw that for the first time, I mean, talking straight out of like Star Wars, like, yeah. <sighs> unbelievable. And the size of the, just the sheer magnitude when you walk into these mosques and the pillars are bigger around than this tent that we're sitting in. And they're hundreds of years old and you just oh. think of, you know, the, the construction yeah. How, how long it took, how many people it took. It's uh, unreal. Yeah. Absolutely unreal. But uh, you can't, you know, you can <clears throat> you can sit there and look on a computer screen and, and look at the stuff justice. and read about it all you want. But once you get there. Yeah, it's like the pyramids or the Sphinx or Have you it, seen the pyramids? I have. 
Wow, I'm jealous. I've never. And, never and, and that, you know, you look at it and you go, how the hell in that day and age yeah. did they make that? And and to hear the story, and we were lucky enough to have had a guide to do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, it is just fascinating how they, how they, and it took a long time, but it was very methodical, you know, and it was sort of a circular, you know, I believe, if I recall correctly, kind of construction where they just. Oh, just keep the, zipping them up. Yeah. It was just fascinating. And uh, the ingenuity and, uh, I, I don't know, I just, I, to me that. That's just wonderful stuff to see and, and learn. Oh yeah, well, and you there's there's just no way you can appreciate it unless you're actually right there, right? And, just and even like, some of the natural wow. stuff. I mean, I uh, you know the you know the the, the 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 natural wonders of the world. You know, oh yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I used to do a fishing trip every 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 early June and outside of Telluride uh, down the Black Canyon, and it's you know it's not you know anything you know, true, truly remarkable. But these, these canyon walls are, uh, in, uh, in which the Gunnison River runs, I mean, they're a thousand feet straight up in the air on either side. I mean, it's like a, it's like a big, huge hallway, but, you know. Without, you down to the bottom of and, it. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, you look up and it's just astonishing. And, and you just go, God, this is mother nature at its best. I yeah. mean, it's just incredible. And there's stuff like that in the U.S. There's stuff. I mean, you. Well, we get the Grand Canyon. Grand that Canyon's one, a perfect example. We wear I mean, that on our shoulder, you know. But I mean, how suckers. spectacular is that? I mean, it takes your breath away. I've been down it twice. Have you really down the Colorado? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once was halfway when I was like 12, and then I was very fortunate to get yeah, invited. Yeah, because those permits aren't easy to get. No, well, we went with an organized, um, oh, guided trip of, but it was all on the small. Um, raft? Yeah, the small rubber raft, maybe five people in each one. Yeah. But That's the some second heavy time, water you're going through. Well, the the second time we went, uh, it was 2004, I think. So I was in my 20s and could appreciate it a little more, I guess. But when we went there, the first four days they had monsoon rains. Oh my God! So I mean, really we're talking dead cattle floating down the river, it's all bloated. Roaring. It wiped out a few wastewater treatment plants. No kidding. Just the the they look like chocolate milk running down oh, there. I'm sure. But some of those, I mean, it, I, I can't remember what the exact stats were, but I believe the Colorado usually runs between like seven and 9,000 feet per second. I think we were up in the 45,000. 45 CFS. Oh, it was huge. I mean, they these guys Last were like water at, the whole way down. Just like, <laughs> well, a lot of them actually got wiped out. Um, I don't know if you've ever read that book, uh, The Emerald Mile. It's about the I, I record the setting yeah, I know, one. I, I know of the book. I have yeah. not read it, but I know the book. That that makes me, every time I peel into that just for a little bit, it makes me want to go back and do one more trip down the Colorado. But those are, you know, that, that, that's just magnificent topography around there. It, and you're just, you don't even have to do anything. You're just sitting there watching it float by. Oh, my gosh. And there's stuff like that all over the world. Yeah. I mean, every, uh, anyway, I, I just... I, yeah, oh, we could go on and on and on. I no, mean, but that just creates that itch, you know, where you just, yeah, if, if yeah, you're yeah. fortunate enough to be able to do it, and, and even if it's within the U.S., you know, there's plenty of ways to see a lot of remarkable things. Absolutely. And, so we're very fortunate. What's the, uh, outside of uh, some of the places you've talked about now, what, what's like the furthest removed from civilization you've you've gotten on one of these trips? 
Well, certainly the the trip to Bolivia where we got with the Samani tribe that was pretty remote. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we've done some stuff, uh, and I don't. This probably doesn't. We've done some stuff and and. You know, northern Quebec and uh, Labrador and, and oh, things that's like out that. there, yeah, and that, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, uh, would that be up in the Arctic Circle? Pretty close, pretty darn yeah, close, pretty close. Right? Uh, and uh, so that even even Alaska, for that matter. I mean, you want to talk about the last frontier? That, that you're amazed at the amount of terrain when you get to northern Quebec or up. You know, that whole northern half of yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of Canada. I mean, it just, I'm astonished at, at how much terrain is out there and it's just empty. Absolutely I mean, empty. Yeah. Absolutely empty. <laughs> and you can't, you can't, it kind of, it's like you, you sort of think about it and imagine it and it's four times more than you thought. And, uh, it just takes, again, it takes your breath away when you, when you when you're in a position like that and and to your point and i've got a friend who i do those trips with it takes him a day or two to settle in he gets very sort of anxious to mm-hmm. be so remote i mean yeah you know, yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 it's not something that can come easy to everybody no no well i like i said i mean i i always am pretty skittish that first day oh, when i, I set sail because i'm sort of like is what is everything do I have everything ready? <laughs> Nothing's leaking, right? This is working, right? Because pretty soon I'm going to be I'm in gonna the middle be, of the Yeah, I'm going to be 100 miles away by tomorrow morning. Yeah, no, I. you have to have the stomach for it, and it takes some adjustment. Uh, it doesn't bother me too much. I mean, I can't possibly fathom being in the middle of an ocean where there's 12 whatever million square miles yeah well that's an oddball that's an outlier well but still i mean you want to talk about yeah yeah yeah. well i i got within uh i think 30 miles of point nemo so that's the farthest you can get away from land on the planet and that (laughs) you're at that exact spot and it's deep in the south pacific uh i think you know it's it's like Easter Island, and then maybe one other island, and then Antarctica. Those are those are on the radius, so to speak. But it's it's about that eight. I, that that I can't possibly fathom. But uh, that one, well, and you know what? It's funny because people people typically describe Cape Horn as the Mount Everest in sort of sailing yeah. world. I think that Point Nemo is the Everest of the sailing world because it's the farthest you can get. I mean, it's the just like Everest's the highest. This is the farthest, and then. I've always thought of Cape Horn as uh, like Mount Mount Olympus, and I'm I'm sort of uh, influenced by this old old sailor Bernard Motissier, who was one of the greats, and uh, he was very poetic and often described as uh, writing as if he was on like LSD because of his you know poetic descriptions right, of right. these these things. But very he always said he was like it's more like Mount Olympus because. It's like holy water there. It's a it's a hallowed place, and it's it's a place of gods and men and all this sort of sure. stuff. I don't know. Yeah, but I uh, I can't possibly fathom being at, Nemo. Just sounds. Uh, it, it takes a certain. When I was there, it was foggy. It looked like any other day. I could have been off the coast of Cape Cod. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it was good. It was foggy. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? No panic attacks. <laughs> Oh man! Well, we're already uh, at an hour, believe it or not. 
goes no by kidding. pretty fast on that. Yeah, it always is fun talking with you, man. Hey, it's a, my my pleasure. I thank you. I always tell my guests that you know, time, our time is the most precious thing we have more than anything other by far. And when you give me an hour of it, I'm very appreciative. Well, uh, back at you, my friend. It's a, it's a treat. And thank you so much for including me. I, you're even thinking of me. I, I'm hey, flattered. and kidding uh, me? I, I Cultured enjoyed... man as yourself, <laughs> adventurer. Oh, hey, does that, do you have anything planned for this uh, winter? Uh, let me think. Uh, uh, may go down to uh down to chile uh, oh really yeah um friend of mine has a lodge down there about uh uh two-thirds the way down yeah uh, so pretty far down uh and terrific uh uh you know scenery yeah right oh in yeah the middle all of the mountains Andes, and you know, everything yeah and, and it's uh these these lakes are just beautiful and the brown trout are huge and so that's what i always big. heard yeah um, it's a trout and i've been there once before so yeah i may take a uh, a run down there because that's really it's hard to get to it takes a long time but the the people again you know it is just such a, a wonderful environment a lot of wind so the fishing is is challenging but oh i'm sure yeah. that's okay uh but it is stunningly beautiful and the fishing is great and the people and food are great and the whole environment's great. So uh, It's so crazy because it really is. I mean, the, the thing I keep hearing is, you know, fishing is only a small part of these trips, really. It's it's the excuse to maybe do it. Yeah, if, yeah. If, if, it's, if it's not going to be accompanied by, you know, some great people, some great scenery, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not interested. Right, right. No, that uh, makes fishing, sense. Fishing is just a piece of it. Gotcha. All right, man. Well, Very thank you cool. so much. Thank you. You got it. All right. That's.